Jordan turned 60 this past, what week was it? So I'm, I'm clicking my way through a little, you know, highlight photos of, of Michael Jordan. And I saw one from his college days from a game in which I was sitting on the second row. And I had a clear view when he went up to, to block someone's shot. And I kid you not, he hit from about here up on the backboard and fell out on the floor, possibly unconscious. Now, this is the days before they had, you know, a, a check. What do you call that when you bang your head? Um, concussion check, right? This is the day when they just hauled you over to the bench and they put smelling salts under you and you do like that. And they give you a cup of water and say, great, back in, you know, in you go. And I remembered that, and I was clicking through these other things. Now, also, right, in the past, I don't know, 10 days or so, right, LeBron passed Kareem for all-time scoring. So I just want to let you know, I don't get in that argument. Which one's the GOAT? I don't argue that. I think they both have great cases. I simply say to folks, watch the highlight reels from Jordan's first year. Because... What happened in that first year, which for many of you may even be before you were born, what happened in that first year is that he would just do stuff that people didn't think he could do. They didn't think anybody could do it. So you literally have these dudes standing around flat-footed going, why is he jumping from over there? And then he'd go flying by them and dunk it, and they go, oh, he can jump from over there. And it was just like not fair. It was just like a whole different thing had happened. All right. What's the point of this? The point of this is Jordan, at one point, he says, he says famous quote, he says, something to the effect of, because people don't realize what a great defender he was. He said, defense is just fitness plus concentration. I'm like, okay. I mean, jumping 42 inches in the air doesn't hurt. But, okay, defense is just fitness plus concentration. Another point he says, famous thing, I've always believed if you put in the work, the results will come. I don't do things half-heartedly. He was so amazing. Does anybody remember that Frozen Time ad? He was so amazing that Nike came out with this ad. They called it Frozen Time. And what it was is you got a big TV in different rooms, right? They flipped to these different rooms. There's a TV. And here he is flying through the air, and the game clock's ticking down. And you've got this one dude who stops shaving, and the water's running over in his sink. And you got these... You know, this kid who gets off his bike and the bike's falling over in slow motion and everybody's just standing there, what's going to happen, right? Time has frozen because he does these things that are just, just so amazing, you know? And it's a fro they call it the frozen time ad. He did a lot of things that amazed people. But he also did an awful lot of hard, gritty, behind the scenes, nobody ever sees it, work to be able to be that person who amazed people so much. Lent, friends, is something like that. Give me, give me a loose analogy. It's something like that. There's all this stuff we do, not to try to amaze people, but to draw closer to Jesus. Jesus amazed people, did he not? Some dozen times in the Gospels that, that we're told, the people were amazed. He taught. They were amazed. He healed people with power. They were amazed. He speaks to the sea and calms it down. They're amazed. I don't think it is. Jesus is the second Adam. He's tempted in every way that we are. He gets hungry. He gets tired. He gets thirsty. 
He's vulnerable. Jesus has to do a lot of stuff behind the scenes to be able to stay in that connection with the Father that enables him then to go about doing all this teaching with authority and healing people and other things that cause people to be amazed. Lent is about walking in Jesus and doing that in our personal lives, rearranging our personal lives to be doing that stuff. We're doing that stuff behind the scenes to be able to be walking with him all the time. We see this morning in our gospel lesson, the classic gospel lesson for the first Sunday of Lent, everybody sees this. We're all good to go, right? Boom, switches on. But not quite yet. There's still one step that has to be completed. There's still one connection that has to be made. So the Spirit pushes Jesus. We're told this explicitly. Matthew tells us it's the Spirit. In Mark, it's a very strong verb. In Mark, the Spirit casts Jesus, like really forces him out into the wilderness. And in Mark, he's out there with the wild beasts. Why? Because he's Adam. He's the second Adam. The New Testament calls Jesus the second Adam. What it means by that is primordial parents set the human being. They're the DNA for all humanity. They're representing all of who and what we are. Jesus is the second Adam. He comes to reset the human being. He represents all of us. He pulls our very nature into himself because he is fully God, but he's also fully human. So he represents all of us. So in Mark, he's out there with the wild beast. He's like Adam in the garden again. Matthew takes us on into then the temptations. And in these temptations, Jesus goes, you know, tete-a-tete, mano-a-mano against the tempter. And where we failed before that led to so much trouble, as we heard in that, you know, pretty dense reading of Paul in Romans, it takes, you know, you're just like, huh? That's what Paul's getting at. We'll come to that in a minute. Paul's getting at where we fell before in the first Adam, Jesus then resets the human being in the second Adam, in himself. And between his baptism and his beginning to do things that amaze people, he has to go do the hard work behind the scenes with no audience, with no glory, of facing the same kind of temptation in which we originally faced and failed. Make sense? This is what Jesus is doing in the temptations. So 40 days and 40 nights. As I understand it, we're now told from nutrition science that that's about how long the human can fast before your body starts to eat itself. Amazing, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how traditional people know all this stuff and we think we're smart because we figure it out later, but they knew it all along? So Jesus fasts basically to the limit, plus 40 days, 40 years, 40s in the Bible seem to be big for God. That's, that's the time that God sets for remaking the world, it seems like. Think about Noah and the flood and all that sort of stuff. Several different times when 40 days or 40 years are things that God does to reset the world. So Jesus is out there fasting to reset the human being if you will, to get dominion again and starting where? Starting where it most needs to happen, which is inside ourselves. As we're told in Romans 8, 
that the creation itself was subjected to frustration not willingly, but the will of the one who subjected it in hope. And the reason for that is because of us. We messed it up. We're the one, so Jesus is going to reset the human, so he starts in himself as the one who represents all humanity. So, the Satan comes to him. He says, you hungry? Still happy you did this body thing? What's it like to be in a body? You've never been in a body before, at least not walking around on earth. You've never been hungry, have you? Not the plot. Jesus shows us how to handle temptation. He answers, Scripture says, go to the authority, trust the story. Scripture says the human doesn't live on bread alone. We live by every word that comes of God. So then the Satan's like, okay, we're going to play that way then. You had to quote Scripture at me. So do you notice what he does? He quotes Scripture at Jesus. He tempts Jesus using Scripture. Notice that. People can misuse Scripture and lead you in a bad place. It isn't just people who've done it. The Satan does it. Satan says, oh, you're going to quote Scripture at me. Fine, I can play that game. So he says, the Scripture also says, you know, cast your, you know, uh, my angels will be sent to protect you. You won't hurt yourself. So, so cast yourself off of here. He takes him up on the high place. Cast yourself off. Let's see. Let's see it happen. He's asking Jesus, if you are the Son of God, then do you trust the Father? So you're going to keep that plot. You're going to go the hard route. And Jesus answers and says to him, yeah, I'm not going to short circuit it. I'm not going to cheat the people I love. I'm going to walk through the whole thing. I'm going to reset the human in myself. I'm going to bear it all for them. I'm not taking any shortcuts. He says, Scripture says again, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He says, I trust my Father. I remember his voice. This is my beloved Son. I remember it. I believe him. I trust him. I'm holding on. I'm keeping the plot. So then the Satan gives up on if you are the son of God, he says, okay, fine, you're keeping the plot. Let's just try something else. He says, takes him up on a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, hey, I'll give you all these if you just bow down and worship me. Let's just forget principles. Let's just forget the big stuff. Let's just play quid pro quo. You know, you give me this, I'll give you that. And Jesus is no dummy. And he says, you know, that doesn't work. Because if I bow down to you, the whole thing dissolves. And it's all lost. And that's what I'm doing out here fasting anyway, is resetting the human being. This is the point of this moment. So no. He says, be gone, Satan. Scripture says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. So the devil leaves and Two amazing things happen next. Two amazing things happen next because now they can. Because now in Jesus, we are reset. It's not done, right? He still has to go to the cross. We still need the resurrection. We need the ascension too. We need him to be seated on the throne. We need this, the day of Pentecost. We need the spirit to come down. And we're waiting on the second coming. But nonetheless, a huge, massive, important first step has happened. 
And in a sense, you, you can say in a sense, Jesus is one right here when the devil leaves. They've had the showdown, and he stood up to him, and he's one. So angels come and wait on him. Because they can. Because he can handle it. Because dominion that we were granted is restored in Jesus. Now, there's a lot that dominion was never meant to mean. There's a lot of stuff we do with that concept that it was never meant to mean. But Jesus, who came not to be served but to serve, can handle it. And so in his person, it's restored. And so angels come and wait on him. And then we're told that Jesus waits a little bit. He moves out on his own. He waits a little bit. And then when John the Baptist is given over and he's put in prison, then Jesus comes forward. And now the time for him to go out publicly on his thing. So he goes forward, began to proclaim the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Repent, Greek word, we've said this before, but it's good to remember it, metanoia. Nous is the word for mind, metanoia, a new mind, a new story, a new meta-narrative. Jesus is not saying to them implicitly, God is mad at you, behave better. He's saying to them, get a new meta-narrative. Get a new story of who you are, of who God is, of what life is about, of how God cares for you. Get a new story and believe it, what you're living. And then, yeah, live into it. Because you want to live into the story you believe, right? I mean, that's just living as one whole being. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven, the ways of God, the reality of God, the kingdom of heaven is upon you, or better translated, has come near. So Jesus says, now is the time. Humanity has been reset in me. Believe it. Believe that God is near. Believe that God is working. Believe it today. Believe it in this moment. Grab onto it and live it and go with it. Paul then writing to the church in Rome, speaks of the effect, if you will, of what Jesus, living into being the second Adam, means for all of us. So Paul wrote all these churches. Two things exceptional about the book to the Romans. One is Paul did not start this church, and the second one is he's never visited them yet. Normally, Paul's letters to churches, he writes to them because they've got some particular something going on, and he's helping them with it. You know, somebody's come and is misleading you. Paul scurries off a letter. Don't listen to that. Or, you know, they're arguing and fighting amongst themselves. Hey, 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 come on, guys. You know, whatever it is. The book of Romans, not a church he started, not one he's visited. He's writing to them to say, hey, this is kind of what this thing is. This is how this works. He's writing them the kind of thing he would have taught to the churches that he started. He would have taught to them. So, The point of that is the book of Romans is the most like a theology, right? It's the less about you have this issue. It's the more here's the whole thing. Make sense? That's why it's a little bigger than some of the others. So Paul writes to them, and he says, hey, the effect of this whole second Adam thing, 
He says, it's through one man that sin entered the world, and through sin came death. And death pervaded the whole human race inasmuch as all people have sinned. All right, there's the problem. Came from this one dude, the first Adam. He says, but God's act of grace is out of all proportion to Adam's wrongdoing. He's saying the cross of the second Adam is going to be even bigger than the mess up of the first Adam. For if the wrongdoing of the one man brought death to so many, its effect is vastly exceeded by the grace of God and the gift that came to so many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Romans 8, building up to that high point. He's already building up to that crescendo. The grace of the act of the second Adam much exceeds the, the fall of the first Adam. He says it again. Again, the gift of God is not to be compared in its effect with that one man's sin. Following on the one offense, that issued in a verdict of condemnation, but the act of grace following upon so many misdeeds issued in a verdict of acquittal. For if by the wrongdoing of that one man death established its reign through a single sinner, much more shall those who receive in far greater measure God's grace and his gift of righteousness live and reign through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, friends, the second Adam, pulling us and our nature into himself, giving us new life, resetting us as human beings, Jesus was amazing, utterly amazing. And yet he was also the most approachable of all people. Jesus was somehow simultaneously amazing and yet also low and tired. They know he has to go somewhere and sleep. They see him get up early and go out to pray. They see him as a real person. Jesus spreads his amazement out through his three years of ministry. He's working with us. He's giving us digestible bits. He's growing us because he knows what kind of creatures we are that we live in time. There's one place in the Gospels where Jesus says, I have so much to say to you, but you couldn't take all that right now. So, okay, we'll do that later. You know, or, okay, the Spirit will lead you into all truth when the Spirit comes. Jesus is gentle with us, even while he's amazing. Friends, Jesus grows us. He grows us. He grows us into the people we're meant to be. He's delighted when we grow. So, in Lent... This year, as you go and you say to yourself, by golly, the kingdom of God is near me today. The kingdom of God is near me right now. The kingdom of God is with me in this Lent. God is present. He's with me. He's growing me. He loves me. And you bring this stuff into your heart and you say then, okay, Lent is about me rearranging, cleaning up the lens, cleaning up my habits or whatever, rearranging my life so that 
God can sow seeds in me, so the soil of my soul will be fertile, so that stuff will grow. Jesus, friends, knows you. He loves you. The true you in Jesus Christ is, guess what? Is amazing. Is amazing. Just like Jesus was amazing. True you in Jesus is amazing. Irenaeus of Lyon is an early church father. Irenaeus wrote his works called Against the Heretics. And he specifically argued against the Gnostics. Now, the Gnostics, you know, gnosis, the, the word knowledge. The Gnostics were these people who thought that having a body was bad. And they believed that, that spiritual truth was separate from physical creation living and that the way to become enlightened was to pass out of physical stuff into greater levels of spiritual stuff. And they separated those two. And this was, a big, this was a big thought coming out of Greek thoughts. It was one of the major challenges of the New Testament church to, to deal with this stuff. And because there is a lot that's spiritually amazing, right? And the New Testament church has to say, yeah, there is a lot that's spiritually amazing. And there is such a thing as spiritual goodness, but also, you know, our bodies are not bad. And they have to, they have to hold all this together. And Irenaeus does a lot of this. Irenaeus famously said, the glory of God is the human being truly alive. The glory of God is the human being fully alive. The glory of God is the human being fully alive. Think about it. He made us in his image. He grows us. He cares about us. He's redeemed us. So when we're fully alive, people go, wow, look at that. And God who made us gets glory. There's a wonderful second part to it. The glory of God is the human being fully alive, and the life of the human is the vision of God. The life of the human is the vision of God. And when we live that balance, when we can see the God who loves us, who is with us, and we can believe it and bring it into ourselves, and we respond to it, the glory of God is the human being fully alive, and the life of the human is the vision of God. It's a great, it's a great way to live. Lent, friends, is about cleaning the lenses so you can see God, and it can have its effect back on you. Let's pray. Let's just uh, take a little time together, invite you to... Um, I just invite you to simply respond to this, to, to uh, respond in whatever way is best. If, if you struggle to believe that the true you in Jesus can be amazing, I'll just share that with the Lord and, and say, Lord, would you give me a vision? Just even, just even a step, just a little vision of, of the beauty of what you have for me. Or maybe that's not a struggle for you. Maybe you just want to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't take a shortcut. Thank you that you walked through everything we experienced and you didn't look for an easy way out. Maybe there's some way that the Lord is calling to you this Lent and saying, I just, I just love to be with you. 
You know, I just, I just love to sit with you every day. Can you just, can, can we just sit together every morning or every evening or both or whatever it is? I just want to be with you. I want to talk with you. I want to hear you. I want to gaze on you and <laughs> warm love. However you respond to this, let's just take a few minutes and, and uh, let, it, let that be what it needs to be.